Hey there, educational rock stars. Are you feeling overwhelmed with lesson planning for your English language learners? Well, I've got some exciting news for you. Introducing our upcoming free webinar, Simplify Your Approach, Three Time-Saving Routines for ELL Success. Join me for a power-packed 45 minutes that's set to revolutionize your teaching strategy. In this webinar, we'll dive into three practical, easy-to-implement routines that will not only enhance your ELL teaching methods, but also save you hours of planning time. Yes, hours. So whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, these insights are tailored to help everyone make the most of their teaching time. Plus, you'll leave this webinar ready to implement these routines the next day. So mark your calendars for our two upcoming dates. I don't want you to miss this opportunity to transform your ELL lesson planning. To reserve your spot, simply sign up at www.equippingells.com slash routines. Trust me, your future self will thank you for it. I'll see you at the webinar. Teaching ELL students is a privilege and a joy. Is it easy? No way. But with the right support, you can feel empowered to tackle each day with ease and confidence. I'm your host, Beth Boucher, founder of Inspiring Young Learners. With over 10 years of teaching both nationally and internationally, I know what it takes to ensure that your ELL students have what they need to thrive today, tomorrow, and for life. I'm on a mission to empower you to equip your English language learners. Welcome to Equipping ELLs. Let's get to today's episode. listening to episode 19 of the Equipping ELLs podcast. I just have to say one of my favorite things about this podcast is the ability to get to talk and interview to such amazing educators. And so that's such a joy that I have to get to have this opportunity to do that. And today is no exception to that. Today's guest you will absolutely love. Maria is joining us today from Everyone deserves to learn. You might have followed her on TPT or on Instagram, but she began her career as a New Jersey public school teacher in 2009 and went on to get her master's in education and teaching ESL. And now she's in an administrative role. And so I love hearing her perspective as she approaches ELLs and through the eyes of administration and how to better support our ELL students. We're really going to focus today on how to connect the four language domains to all content. You are in for a treat. So let's get started. Welcome, Maria, to the show. Thanks so much for being here today. Hi, thank you for having me on. I'm really happy to be here. This is one of those fun things with the world we live in and social media and you follow people and you kind of feel like you get to know them and and you've never really talked to your life. So this is a fun way to get to actually talk to people, have them on my show and get to learn more from you. So Maria is someone I've been following on Instagram and you should follow her too. She can share more about that at the end. But I have just loved seeing all the ways that you are helping ELLs as an administrator in your school. And so why don't you just start by sharing briefly about your current position and maybe a little bit about your background too. Sure. I'll start with what I do now, and then I'll go back to what I used to do. I am currently the supervisor of curriculum and instruction 
in a pre-K through eight school district. And we're a very small school district. And prior to assuming this role, which I took in June of 2020, if you can believe that, (laughs) (laughs) it feels like a lifetime ago. It hasn't been that long. But right before that, I was the school's English language learner teacher. And a little known fact about the way I started my position was the school that I taught in was a hub for refugee resettlement in like 2009, 2010. So I came into the school about a year after the first wave of refugees was resettled and they were refugees from Burma and Thailand. And I didn't know what I was doing. Nobody did. There were no articles out. There were no podcasts. Podcasts weren't a thing back then. There were no products on Teachers Pay Teachers. So everything I did, I learned by making my own mistakes and trial and error. And that just has kind of been the theme for my career is if it doesn't work, try it again a different way. I love it. That is amazing. So what a journey. And what area are you in? I am in Camden County in New Jersey. We're really close to Philadelphia. Okay. Yeah, I know a lot of, in my membership, a lot of teachers from New Jersey. So there's a lot of different populations heading into that area. So that is fascinating. And I'm sure we could get to that too, just your experience of working with refugee resettlement. That's a different episode. (laughs) Exactly. We could go way into that because that's fascinating as well. But that's just so encouraging too. I mean, I think teachers right now feel like what they're doing is not, they don't know and and they feel discouraged. And I think that's such an encouragement of just that testimony that, you know what, a lot of us don't know it, but you keep trying and you keep finding another way. And what you're doing really is making an impact and you try the next door that's open to you. And so I love that now you're finding yourself in this new position where I know you're wearing many different hats. Many hats. Pre-K through eight, that's a lot to cover. So let's get into it because you have a lot to share with us today. We're going to be really focusing on the four language domains and connecting those to contents. And then we're going to also follow up with some thoughts on assessment and standards. So why don't you share a little bit? Let's just go over the four language domains and why those are important. Ooh, okay. Well, and this could be contradictory to other guests you've had on the show and maybe other English language learner experts or teachers. But honestly, in my opinion, speaking is first and foremost the most important language domain I start with when a student enters my class as a newcomer. It's different if a student transfers from a different school where they've maybe been in English language programs for a while. But when I get a newcomer, survival English is absolutely the first thing I focus on. Once I start them with survival English speaking, listening kind of just goes right along with that, um, especially for social situations. And then I move into writing because once you can speak, then you need to start reading street signs and doctor's office information and classroom labels. And we all, as content area teachers or home or mainstream teachers, I feel like a lot of the focus is, well, they've got to read novels and they've got to read chapter books and they've got to read the directions in the math word problem. And yes, that's true, but it's not true yet. Like that's not the most important thing yet. These kids need to be able to get themselves out of a problem if they're in a problem. 
They need to be able to tell somebody they're lost if they are lost. Tell somebody they've got an allergy or they're fasting because they observe Ramadan, if that's true for them. So for me, speaking is and will always be the most important priority language domain. That is wonderful. I love that there's so much we could pull out of that right there. And I I agree completely because, you know, a lot of these students, they're really supporting their families as well of having to translate for their families when they go to the doctor's office, when they go to the grocery store, when they go to the bank and try to do paperwork. So we're really enabling, especially those, you know, fifth through eighth grade students. Absolutely. They need to have those, like you're saying, those, those phrases to use immediately to not just help them, but to help their families a lot of times too. And, you know, I've mentioned this many times on the podcast. I took 10 years of Spanish and then moved to Panama City, Panama and couldn't speak anything because there wasn't a focus and emphasis on speaking. So I agree with you that speaking, we want to get them speaking as soon as possible. And I do believe that can come very quickly. I had many newcomers starting with zero and be in when they're in a comfortable environment, they do start to speak quickly. You know, when it's done in a way that's a game or they're just encouraged or they feel safe, they will start to speak quickly. But can you just speak on that for one minute? Because I know a lot of teachers, they want to be sensitive to the silent period. And so knowing, you know, when to let, like there's just different cultures or some students who really, really are having a hard time and, and aren't ready to speak yet. How do you handle that? That's a really great question and it's it's certainly not without its challenges especially when you have students coming from war-torn areas students coming from the kinds of trauma that you know you and I are fortunate to never possibly experience in our lives there are things we can do and should do while students are in the silent period so they they are hearing us and internalizing those words so that at some point when they are ready, they'll be able to shout, no, stop that, or I don't like that, or I can't eat that. So a lot of that for me when students are in the silent period, if I have to role play with myself, I'll do it. If I need to bring in a puppet, I got these little puppets from Lakeshore for some of my little ones, and I would role play with the puppets. And if the kids sat and watched, at least they sat and watched. And of course, I turned it into a big, goofy, dramatic thing because that's who I am. But you can see the wheels turning in their brains and you think, okay, I know that this student knows now how to say no, stop it, or yes, please, or I need when they are ready to say it, they'll say it. Yes, that is so true. And really how intertwined listening and speaking domains are because we underestimate how much they really are taking in. Just like you're saying, when they're watching that role play, even if they're not speaking themselves, you don't know how many of those students go home and practice at home. And they do try to say that at home. And that was another great point too, of bringing in props so that it's not them, you know, they have another way to feel like it's a puppet or something else to kind of role play instead of them being on the spot. I love those ideas. The whisper phones are good. Yeah. Those were always fun and old cell phones that are lying around. Those are just really good, inexpensive things to keep in a basket and use as tools in the toolkit. Yes, I absolutely love those ideas. And again, just reinstating the point that the focus and the priority is on survival phrases, you know, survival, like reading the labels, writing their name, writing their phone number, those types of things. So 
keeping that in mind for maybe those teachers who are new with working with newcomers, we're not pushing them into content right away. We're being very mindful of what we're helping them, you know, those building blocks to really get those phrases and skills so they can start to get into society, get into this to the school and feel comfortable and confident if they get lost, if they forget their lunch number, if they forget what class they have next. Those are the skills that we need to help them with right away. So I agree 100%. I love that. So let's get into connecting the four domains, which are listening, speaking, reading, and writing to content, because this is something I've been reading a lot about and agree 100% as well, that we cannot just do these things standalone. That really is not point. It's just, there's no purpose in pulling the domains out and, and trying to hit the kids over the head with you know, speaking, speaking, speaking without being connected to content. We need them to have knowledge. We need them to have content. That's how it all comes together. And so share more about how can teachers do that? Uh, Okay. This is one thing like straight from my heart. And I wish we had all day to talk about this (laughs) Uh, because I could go on and on. So you'll have to stop me. The first thing I would do, let's say I have a class of newcomers, maybe middle school, sixth through eighth grade. And I'm going to pick a topic and I'm going to pick it um, on something that is relevant to them, maybe something that they have some background knowledge on. So when I had students from Burma and Thailand, they had a lot of background knowledge. And this sounds juvenile for us, but they had a lot of background knowledge about elephants because elephants were a real threat to their communities. Wow. Uh, a herd of stampeding elephants could wipe out a you know, a refugee settlement. So we worked on elephant language. We worked on elephant vocabulary. We worked on habitat. We worked on body parts. And all of that was based on just initial pictures. What do you see? I see. And then taking those things that we saw and writing with this sentence frame, I see an elephant's trunk. And then looking at that in terms of for students who had a little bit of English, looking at that apostrophe S, that possessive, and understanding that that's what we say when the elephant has something. And then turning that after we'd gathered all of that background knowledge and got all those sentence stems, and I would make little books. I would just type it up in PowerPoint and write in little book form what we had already seen and talked about and written down. And then it brought it all together. And then from there, if the students are ready, we could move on into published, you know, published nonfiction. I never found a series that I loved enough to say, yes, this is it. I'm definitely a hodgepodge kind of girl. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I mean. As teachers, we have to throw all these things together, right? And every group of students is so different too. And so you have to find, I love that example of, you know, beginning with something your students have knowledge on and are interested in is so powerful, especially for those students. There's so much vulnerability that goes into learning English. And so finding that connection that gets them excited, even if it's them speaking in their own language to each other, but it just gets their interest right away. Then it opens the doors for those other, those other domains covered. One year I did, I think I spent two months and the only sentences we wrote about were Batman and Superman and Spider-Man. <laughs> I learned more about superheroes <laughs> and, 
everything. I had a couple of newcomer boys and that was all they knew because those were the shows they were watching. And that's what we did. I see Spider-Man, Spider-Man jumps, Spider-Man climbs, Spider-Man falls, all that kind of stuff. We learned some good verbs. Absolutely. <laughs> Onomatopoeias in that. I mean, come on, right? Pow, bam. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's wonderful. You know what I have found wherever I've gone around the world? I've, I've traveled to a few countries and this, the kids seem to always know who Michael Jordan is. Because I'm from Chicago. So they say, oh, Chicago Bulls, Michael Jordan. Even if they do, they knew very little English. I remember being in Rio and these students are saying, oh, Michael Jordan and Michael Jackson. That was kind of the okay. two. <laughs> like wherever I went, they knew those two Michaels. So, oh, that's wonderful. So tell them, let's say we have, you know, since you work with pre-K through eight right now, a seventh grade social studies teacher, how, you know, that's working with maybe students who are a little more advanced than newcomers, our intermediate ELLs. What would you recommend for that teacher to do? The first thing I would ask them, I would ask the teacher, do you have an understanding of the kids' approximate proficiency levels that are in your classroom? Because although that data, we may want to call it invalid or unreliable, it is still data. And it's a jumping off point. So for content area teachers who are not maybe the homeroom teachers and like a K to five who don't have them all day, the very first thing to do is take a look at the proficiency scales. In New Jersey, we use WIDA. I know there's LPAS and other different types of proficiency assessments. Honestly, although it sounds tedious and it sounds like work, it's work that has to be put in. And I'll make the example here that if you had a student with learning disabilities, you would first go to the IEP. If you had a student who was blind or deaf, you would first go to the 504. Yeah. That's the first place you would start. So to figure out what to do with the children sitting in front of you, the first place to look is any documentation you can find. Yeah, I love that. I, I completely agree too. You know, I, I think especially when we get into our intermediate ELLs, you know, newcomers, we can kind of, we know this is the process they need to go. Here's the foundations to build. And when we get to our intermediates, it, sometimes you feel like you're just throwing a dart in the dark and hoping that you're you're trying to hit that target somewhere if you don't look at the data first, if you don't have that jumping off point of, you know, this is where the student was last year. Here's where they're at language proficiency level, here are some skills and some expectations that are appropriate for that that language level. That is a great starting off point. And we need to have that. Otherwise, we're really, even if we're scaffolding, it might not be the right scaffold for that particular student or for that group of students. And so I love that to look back at the data. And let's talk about the data because you're doing a lot of creation. of share, You just share more about that, the assessment tools and things like that that you're working on right now for your school. Oh, okay. I could talk about this for another day and a half as well. So <laughs> we're going to have you on a, a few more times, Rhea, because this conversation could go all day for both of us, I think. <laughs> One of the things I did when I came into the position in June of 2020 was think a lot about what the next school year would look like, 2021. And in that time, 
there was so much uncertainty. Would we be in school? Would we be out of school? How long would we be out of school? What was hybrid? Like people didn't even know what synchronous and asynchronous meant at that point. And I remember going to a webinar about standards-based grading. The presenter was Dr. Dave Schmidow, and he talked about priority standards. And the light bulb went off in my head and I said, oh my gosh, that's what we need. That's where we need to go. So over the course of that time, I've really, really been working on identifying the standards in our curriculum that are the most important. Essentially, in like 10 words or less, they're the main idea of your course. So for an eighth grade English teacher who wants to identify a priority standard, I would say, okay, what's the main idea of your class? What are the three things students will, without a doubt, walk away knowing? Taking that same philosophy and applying it to English language learners and students with disabilities has opened so many eyes when it comes to pedagogy and improving tier one instruction because we can align IEP goals way more easily to priority standards than we can to just a course syllabus when we target the most important thing that we are going to teach, assess, and report on, then everybody's flowing the same direction in the same river with different boats. I absolutely love that. Do you have more buy-in, do you feel like, from content and homeroom teachers when it comes to then differentiating and scaffolding for their ELLs? If it's you know much clearer, hey, here's our main idea, here are the three targeted goals we're going for this semester. It's a slow process. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, buy-in is definitely a slow process. But you know what I've seen is that with students who are in K through five, they started the process a year before our middle school staff. I've seen it. Actually, I just had a conversation last week with a teacher and she goes, oh, Maria, I get it now. I understand it now. And I was like, yes, you know, the light bulb and the the chorus singing hallelujah, all that kind of stuff. (laughs) So I would say that the buy-in happens during implementation, which is hard because, of course, we want everyone to be on board. But the reality is that's that's not going to happen. No. Not in I am not an ice cream seller. <laughs> no. I cannot make everyone happy. <laughs> that, that's true. We try. We try hard sometimes. But now, how do WIDA standards and Common Core fall under those priority standards? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so, this is so WIDA just changed their standards. I, I know. Have, <laughs> and this will make me sound terrible, but I haven't had a chance to examine them in depth yet. I think they just put the revision out. In New Jersey, we do not have Common Core. We have New Jersey standards, which is essentially Common Core with slightly different numbering systems. <laughs> Don't you love that? <laughs> so there is no easy answer for this, but what we try to do our general philosophy for every English language learner, except, you know, a brand new newcomer is to say, okay, here's the second grade pacing guide, the second grade scope and sequence. By the end of the year in second grade, they are going to be able to add and subtract 
numbers, three-digit numbers. Okay, so what vocabulary goes into that? And that's then where we look at the WIDA standards and say, okay, let's, let's look at the vocabulary here that's appropriate to a student who's either a 2.5 or a 3.5 or a, a 4, and we look at it that way. And there's, that may not be the right way to do it. Uh, it may not be the most popular way to do it, but that's the way we're doing it right now. Hey, it sounds like that's a great way to do it. <laughs> and if you're having success, then why why change it, right? Um, yeah, it's 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 a tricky balancing act, though, because like you said, no two classes are the same. And right now in my school, where six, eight years ago, our entire population of English learners was refugees from Burma, and we could consider them all newcomers, we have not a single newcomer right now. Really? Not a single one. And it's just a matter of demographics, cost of living. I mean, that's a whole sociopolitical talk we can get into too, is where did they all go? Yeah. Wow. Why not? Why not our town anymore? I don't know. Do you still have the Burma population? They moved out for lower cost of living. I have one family left from my original group of 30, 40 something families. I have one family left. Wow. Yeah. And this is why it's important across the board, across the country, that we're all learning and prepared and advocating for these students because, you know, they there might be in your school right now and and then transient and moving to a different place in a different area. We want to make sure they're getting the support and that continued support wherever they're at in in the country. So, so I'm going to ask you one more question here. What would you recommend, you know, a lot of the listeners here are ESL teachers. And so if they're in a school that they're not doing priority standards and just feeling really overwhelmed with the targeted goals for their ELLs and then how to, you know, collaborate with homeroom teachers on setting those goals, do you have any tips for how to easily break it down? And I like what you said of, you know, looking at WIDA and pulling out the vocabulary with the content. Do you have anything else that comes to mind of how to really help empower those ESL teachers to advocate for their students and help clarify, here are some really simple goals, but powerful goals that this student can work on this quarter. I love that question. And truly, it was something that I struggled with for a long, long time. I remember being jealous of the social workers and the case managers because they could always point to the IEP. They could always point to a 504 and say, well, it says right here in this document, but I didn't have that. So eventually with my super superintendent's approval, I made one and it's not an official federal document like an IEP or a 504, but we called it an ELL action plan. It's not my idea in any way, shape or form. I, you know, begged, borrowed and stole from another district and tweaked it. So it was my own, but it became the document that I could refer to and say, Hey, have you looked at the student's action plan? It seems like the student's mod- you know, expected modification is elimination of alliteration. For some kids, words like solvent and soluble, when they're together on the science test, it's, it's just not fair. <laughs> it's just not fair. So a modification might be eliminate one of those very similar words from the test. That's just one example. So I might be able to say, hey, let's take a look at that action plan and go through what we've outlined together. And that's something that I would have met with every teacher 
at the beginning of the year, you know, those first two and a half to three weeks of school where you're setting up all of these implementation charts and procedures. And the action plan would have been based on prior years classroom observations, if we had them, if it was not a brand new student, any entrance data that we had, and then the the previous year's access, which is the test that um, students take in New Jersey for ELO. And although, like I said, it was kind of cobbled together, it worked. And it was a document that people could refer to. And I think sometimes a piece of paper, even though not officially official, is sometimes the, the best thing to give and advocate for students. That was wonderful. Yeah, that's so and I love the practicality of that. I think as I, I was a homeroom teacher as well. And so knowing there is a file I can go to and look at a one page document to kind of spark that conversation I had. It helps. It helps feel more confident that, you know, or you can at least try one of these things. And it helps that that ESL teacher also hold those teachers to accountability of what they are supposed to be doing. And you don't have to repeat yourself every time. So I love that just having that one page action plan of different ways that they can help their students. Well, Maria, this was wonderful. We are going to definitely have you back because we have a lot more to talk about, but thank you so much. These tips were so practical, so helpful. I loved hearing the different stories and how you've used them throughout your years of teaching. And before we go, why don't you share with our listeners different ways they can connect with you? Sure. So Instagram is at everyone deserves to learn. And I don't really post on Facebook very much anymore. Twitter is at Mrs. M-C-E-D-U. And then my website and blog is everyonedeservestolearn.com. So whichever way you choose to interact with me, I am happy to hear questions. You can also email me, everyone deserves to learn at gmail.com. I've, I've been able to help a lot of teachers that way, whether it's sending them the action plan template or, you know, troubleshooting. So I'm definitely willing and happy to talk and I'm happy to come back anytime. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate that. Yes. Make sure you follow Maria and we'll, we'll post those in the show notes as well so that you guys can make sure that you get all that information down. So thank you so much, Maria. Have a great day and thanks everyone for listening. Bye. Thank you for joining me in today's episode. All links and resources mentioned can be found in the show notes. If you're looking for even more support and done-for-you resources created specifically for the needs of ELLs, head to inspiringyounglearners.com. I'll catch you here next week. Until then, take that next step to keep equipping your ELLs.